Father, there are many reasons we need your help right now. For one, it's so easy that just because we can come to this book each day and we come here each week to forget the, the grace that is shown to us right now. To hold your words in our hands and to read what the Spirit uses to give life. Oh God, we pray we would not be distracted or miss this because we take it for granted. And we need your help because we're sinners. And in our flesh, we don't accept these things. So we pray your Spirit would show us Christ and reveal His glory now through your Word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Life goals should be worth the costs. When people dream of making money doing something they love doing, we go to school or we start a business. But then some drop out. Some give up. People get married with many hopes and dreams for life. And it always seems like it's going to start off so great. But some get divorced. Maybe for just reasons. But for others, it's just the accumulation of conflict and disappointment. It could be as simple as a new diet or a competition or friendship. But so many of our goals for life are never actually obtained. And it's all because at some point, the costs don't seem worth it. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. What are you pursuing as a goal for life? And how will you manage to obtain it? And if you're a Christian, what's keeping you in the race? Fighting the good fight of faith that you might obtain real, eternal life. How will you persevere through suffering and disappointments and resist the great temptation to turn back from Christ and seek life in this world? Especially when Jesus is the reason life is hard. When following Him comes with many more costs. And there's no promise of change in this life. Our passage today helps us confront the natural temptation to give up on the Christian life based on what it looks like in the present. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 60. John 6, 60. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 948. 948, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters, and the smaller numbers are the verses. For context, in chapter 1, John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's promised deliverer and king. Then in chapters 2 through 4, Jesus is presented as being able to bring the blessings of God's kingdom into this world. And all who believe in him can enter that kingdom. But then in chapter 5, Jesus is rejected for claiming to be one with God the Father. And in his defense, Jesus points to the works that he's doing and to the testimony of Moses in the scriptures saying that it all points to him. In chapter 6, Jesus looks a lot like Moses, miraculously feeding a multitude in a remote place. And so people rightly identify him at that point as the promised prophet, and they try to make him king. Because everything looks so good in that moment. Jesus can fix all our problems. Jesus can give us the very thing that we need most for life. Food. But then Jesus slips away. 
And when they find them, find him, they tell he tells them that they're working for the wrong food. And suddenly it's clear to everyone, we're not getting any more bread. So when Jesus says that he's the bread and makes it about eternal life rather than this life, people really start to struggle. And in the midst of that struggle, he says some hard things to understand and accept. So in our passage today, many of the people who were following him with great excitement turn back. If you want real life with God, like the kind of life that you're made for, you can't do that. If you're following Jesus for real life, you can't turn back. So here's the way forward according to these verses. Believe and follow Jesus relying on his spirit and his word. Despite all appearances, despite present circumstances, believe and follow Jesus, relying on his spirit and his word. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and apply this passage, the outline reflects the way forward at times when it would be easier to turn back. First, believe when many are offended. That's in verses 60 through 65. Believe when many are offended. And second, follow when many walk away. It's in verses 66 through 71. Follow when many walk away. And in both cases, the way you do that is by relying on God's Spirit and God's Word. So, first, believe when many are offended. Look at chapter 6, verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Not just the twelve. They're distinguished later in verse 67. They're there, but this is a larger group of disciples. Presumably, some of them are among those disciples who once followed John the Baptist in chapter 3 and now followed Jesus. They're certainly among the crowds that sought him on the mountain and listened to him teach all day long. And then they pursued him the very next day. So these aren't the, the Pharisees or Jewish leaders who are opposing Jesus. These are disciples. Now, not true disciples. As we'll see here in a minute, they're fringe disciples, now having second thoughts. The therefore in verse 60 ties this section to Jesus' teaching on himself about being the bread of life. And these disciples say it's hard. Who can accept it? Now, that's actually not a question. They're complaining or grumbling. As verse 61 says, Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? In other words, this isn't just a hard teaching to understand. It's a hard teaching to swallow. It's offensive. Now, what about this teaching offends them? Well, while he was teaching in the synagogue, if we look back at the previous verses, there are two times where people actually grumble or complain. The first time is in verse 41. Therefore the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? They can't make sense of Jesus. He's claiming to be divine and yet they know his parents. 
How can this man claim such glory when Jesus looks just like them? He's just a man. And yet he's claiming that he's the one who's the bread of life, that we should desire him more than our daily bread. Come on. Give up our lives for this guy? That, that, that's what they're complaining about. That's what they're offended about. He's claiming to be divine and that he's worth more than food and that they should pursue him. That's extreme. It's too radical. Then again, a second time in verse 52, they argue or complain about Jesus' death for them. Jesus tells them that if they want to enjoy eternal life, they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that's hard to accept because they understand what he's saying here. They've already identified Jesus as a prophet like Moses. And God told Moses how he would deliver his people from Egypt. They were to sacrifice a lamb, eat its meat, and spread its blood over their door. In this way, God would deliver them from slavery in Egypt. So Jesus is saying, I have to die so that you might live. I'm the lamb. You're going to have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's what will save you. But a dead savior doesn't sound like a great king. Remember, they came to him because their stomachs were filled. And now he's, he's saying he has to die? This is a useless king. Where's the glory in that for us? And clearly, this isn't the kind of teaching they came to Jesus for. This isn't what they want to hear. So they're offended by it. And so Jesus asks a question in verse 62. Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, I know this teaching is hard, but what if you were able to see me going back into heaven in my glory? Would that change the way this teaching sounds? Now, some people actually think that Jesus is doubling down on the offense here. Like, well, if you're offended by my teaching, wait till you see my glory. That can sound like the most natural reading at first. And that is a a possible understanding of verse 62, but I don't think so. Jesus tends to only double down like that with the Pharisees who oppose him. These are disciples. But secondly, think about the context of their complaints. Jesus looks like just any other guy they know. How can he claim to be divine and worth more than their daily bread? And on top of that, Jesus is asking them to believe in him for eternal life, even though he must die. Verse 62 is meant to relieve the tension. I know this teaching is hard, but what if you could see? What if you could see me victorious on my way to heaven? Like the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who's around the very throne of God with an army of angels behind him. If you could see me ascending to that place, how would my teaching sound then? Could you accept it? And the answer is yes. When Jesus is ascending into heaven in Acts chapter 1, you don't have people complaining and walking away offended. Like, oh, are you kidding me, Jesus? No, they look up with awe. And then they leave committed to living for him. There's nothing offensive about the ascension. But the cross... Where he's a public spectacle... Bearing shame. Well, there people tend to mock him and the disciples abandon him. And yet he's the same Jesus. You see, what people hear largely depends on what they see. What we believe and understand is largely based on appearances. The Washington Post wrote about this in an experience with an experiment with Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is a Grammy Award-winning violinist. And one day he dressed up like a struggling artist and played his violin in the DC Metro for 45 minutes. 
And out of the thousands and thousands of people who rode the metro that day, only six people stopped to listen. Most people didn't even look at him. They just go on about their day like there's nothing here. But three days earlier, Joshua Bell played to a full packed out house at Boston Symphony Hall where some people paid $100 a ticket and gave him a standing ovation because what they heard was masterful. But in a subway, people didn't hear anything worth even pausing for. What is it about people that can't hear the beauty of the music in a subway station, but will hear it in an environment of high class and culture from the same guy on the same violin? Jesus knows what people are like. And because his glory is veiled by his flesh, very few people are able to hear the words of eternal life. In fact, it sounds offensive. What do you hear? Can you hear Jesus and his word? Or does the environment of this particular culture, like the collective perception of the Bible or of Christians, Stop up your ears. I find it interesting that the only one who had to actually be pulled away from Joshua Bell in the subway that day was a little child. Someone not blinded by what others tend to see on the surface was able to hear the beauty of the music. And that's who Jesus says we have to become like in order to come to him. So right here, Jesus is letting us know, you can't hear me because I don't look like the king you want. And I don't benefit you right now the way you hoped I would. But if you could see me in my glory, you'd listen. So I'm with John Calvin on this one who says that Jesus isn't doubling down on the offense, but trying to help them understand their spiritual condition. The teaching isn't the problem. It's their hearts. They won't believe unless they can see it. And that's a problem for people throughout John's gospel. Jesus has just rebuked the people of Cana for needing to see in order to believe. At the end of John's gospel, Thomas refuses to believe unless he sees the resurrected Jesus in his glorified body. And after he does, Jesus says, because you have seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Right now, all these disciples see is a man just like them. A man now who is refusing to fix this world's problems, but asking for a deep faith commitment to him. And if you remember from last week, the only promise for life that he's promising comes on the last day. So Jesus doesn't look like a great king worth that commitment Right now. And so they can't accept his teaching in this moment. They don't come to him. They don't believe in him. It's all very tragic. It's very tragic because the incarnation and the suffering of the cross are necessary to save them. Those are the very things that that are the pathway to his glory. But those are the very things that offend them. And so we'd all do really well to know the difference between an offense taken and an offense given. A lot of people today can't make that distinction. Like these disciples, they're offended, but not actually because an offense was given. Jesus here is offering life. It just comes with costs. Here's another mistake we tend to make in our culture. We assume that if something's good, it will feel good. You know, if, it, if, it, if it doesn't feel good, then it can't be good or it can't be right. The reality, however, is that while truth is always good, it's not always easy to swallow. 
Our feelings don't determine truth, not even for us personally. Truth is truth, regardless. And so not everything that Jesus says in love has to feel good or be easy to swallow. Which, honestly, can make our job as pastors here very difficult. Speaking the truth in love means sometimes we'll have to preach hard truths from the text. And maybe share them with you personally and counsel. And really, that's no different from your ministry to one another as members. Or as Christians in the world who are called to go and proclaim this truth about a Savior who was crucified for sin. In love, we have to be willing to say hard things and be misunderstood like Jesus. Jesus is willing to die for sinners in love. And so he's willing to say hard things like, you have no part of me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not that literally eating his flesh would do anything. But you must believe in him to have life because only the Spirit gives life. Verse 63. The flesh does nothing. I mean, Jesus' own flesh did nothing for him when he was dead in the grave. It's the Spirit of God that raised him from the dead. And it's the Spirit who gives us life in Christ. So in the same way that literally eating the flesh of Jesus wouldn't do anything for them, they should put no confidence in their own flesh. That is, what's natural to them. Which might be what they believe based on appearances. Their own understanding won't lead them to life. It's leading them to reject Jesus. Their own efforts to create the life they want is leading to death. They're working for food that perishes. Even if those efforts are done for God, like the Jews who are seeking to keep the Sabbath, they're still stuck in spiritual rebellion. Friends, we're all born spiritually dead. So we have to be born again by the Spirit if we're ever going to see life. In fact, the only other place where the spirit and flesh are pitted against each other like this in John is in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was looking for life with God through religion. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again by the spirit. And that comes through believing in the one he sent. Which means if you and I want real life, eternal life, we must believe his word Despite all appearances, even if it looks and sounds like death to others, we find life in believing the gospel message. That is the only way to feed on Christ. Not through the dead works of our flesh, which can't produce anything for spiritual life. Not through a life that's really good by worldly standards. Or even diligent religious observance, like eating bread and wine every week. All of that still leaves you dead in your sin. Only Christ's work will do, and the Spirit applies His work through faith. So are you here this morning struggling to believe because of certain hard things the Bible says? Or because life itself It's just hard right now. Are you tempted to give up because it looks like Jesus can't offer you as good of a life as something else in this world? Maybe a relationship. Or maybe it's just time and freedom. We all face various temptations to turn back. Because we're all searching for life. All of us are trying to get the most out of our time, right now. This is the life we're living at the moment. And following Jesus not only comes with costs, but it requires us to persevere and wait until the last day when he raises us up to eternal life. That's hard. If you're going to keep going, And one day, never be hungry or thirsty again, but satisfied and happy in Christ. Go right now to where the Spirit gives life. 
do it in this moment. The Spirit works through a knowledge and obedience to His Word. The Spirit works through prayer based on His Word. The Spirit works through the church, which is the community created by the Word. Go to these places to strengthen you in your life with Christ. To strengthen you on your journey. Even when others don't because they're offended and because they can't. Look at verse 64. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Some don't believe. And Jesus isn't surprised by that. Not even by the one who'll betray him. That's because his words are spirit and life. So no one's going to accept his teaching and trust him unless it's granted to him by the Father. As Jesus said back in verse 43, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Spirit must give us sight or we remain spiritually blind. Which means what we hear or see in Jesus doesn't naturally sound good or right or make sense. Like Paul says to the Corinthian church, the cross is foolishness and a stumbling block to those who are perishing. What good is a crucified Savior? And what would that say about his followers? The gospel isn't something you naturally accept. So the appearance of large-scale unbelief in this world isn't evidence that Christians are wrong. And the reality of present suffering in a world that rejects Christ shouldn't cause us to turn back. This is why Jesus told us, no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. People are spiritually blind. And so if you're here struggling to believe, or it just seems hard, and you're wondering, how am I going to persevere? One thing you can do is not be surprised by what you see in this world. Don't be discouraged when you share the gospel with somebody and they don't believe. Share it again. That's what the Spirit uses to give life. When people aren't interested, that's normal. Share it anyway. That's how the Spirit gives life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. Which is why churches shouldn't focus on ministries that appeal to what people want. It's in their flesh. Not that we should make our churches miserable. But if the reason people are coming is because of some service that's attached to the church, or if the, or if the message appeals to the flesh in some way, like the prosperity gospel does, then no one's actually being one to Christ. What we win people with is what we win them to. And we want to win them to Jesus. And that means we need to be all about his word because that's what the spirit uses to give life. So as a church, if we're thinking about our marketing campaign here, if we're doing that this morning, (laughs) we want to be known for our love for the truth and for one another. That's what shows off Jesus. And so we're going to be less about the programs we could offer at this church and more about discipleship in the truth and our life together as we live out the truth. And so the pastors here are concentrated on equipping the church to be the church. We're going to be focused on the ministry of the word and prayer because that's what brings life to the church. And then a lot of responsibility for the ministry of the church is actually on the members. And that makes it a bit messier. But that's also what allows for a deeper community to form around the word and real relationships in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's the members who come up with all the the great ideas for bringing people together in this church. And as we as elders are glad for all that happens, whether it's about swapping cookies around Christmas or or Bible studies throughout the year, whether it's women's prayer or, or fire pit nights, we're happy to see people come up with ideas and get people together and do them all. But we really want us to lean into those things that the Spirit uses to bring life even if the flesh feels an aversion to those things, because only the Spirit gives life. So again, church, we shouldn't be discouraged by unbelief. 
as if the problem is our message. If people don't believe, it's not because Jesus isn't the truth, but because the truth isn't in them. I'm sure you've noticed this about people, just given how politically polarized our country is. But people tend to believe what they want to believe. Even when presented with facts, people will do hermeneutical gymnastics to end up in the same place they just were regarding what they want to believe. And you may be here thinking, yeah, Christians do that too. Yeah, some do. Some do where it's culturally beneficial or socially beneficial. But that's becoming less and less of a thing. It's not culturally beneficial anymore to be a Bible-believing Christian. It's increasingly coming with more costs in this country. And historically, it's always been very costly in the world. Many of the greatest benefits to being a Christian won't come in this life but require that we endure much suffering and hardship for Christ so that we experience it in the next. There's no natural reason that anyone would want to do hermeneutical gymnastics in order to keep on believing this if it weren't actually true. It's hard. There are costs. But they're worth it. They're worth it. But they're not easy. And so we need each other. We're not designed to run this race on our own. And praise God, even though the journey's hard, a church community makes it sweet. Even though I can look out into the world and see that many enjoy this place as an amusement park, this world. I'm at home in this community because I can taste the joys of heaven already with you. So even though the Christian life is hard, it's already better. And yet it's still not yet. And so the temptation is always there to give up and turn back. And many do. So, relying on his spirit and his word, we must also follow when many walk away. Follow when many walk away. This point is shorter. Verse 66. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. From that moment. Think about that moment. Jesus hasn't met their unbelief with a promise of more bread. There's no promise of a better life on earth right now. Not freedom from Rome or greatness restored. And he doesn't relieve the tension by removing the veil of his flesh in order to reveal his glory. There is nothing for them to actually see or do. Only believe. And if they do that, it seems clear that life will continue to be just as hard as it was before. There's no promise until the last day. So from that moment, seeing that Jesus isn't offering something better right now, in fact, things will be just as hard if we, don't, if we do believe. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They came to him for life, but based on the teaching, what's required of faith is too hard. And they turn back. Back to whatever they were doing before, even though something about that old life didn't offer life. But they return to their search 
for bread that is perishing anyway. It's a tragic scene. Spiritually, they just died on the battlefield of faith because it's too hard. And we still see it today. Jesus warned us of this. There are many types of seeds. Different disciples that come about. Not all are true. Jesus warned us that the desire for riches will turn people back. Even if people aren't on a mission to get rich or die trying. Uh, We've witnessed people in our own church just drift away because basically everything else was more of a priority. Not his kingdom and his righteousness. And so they turn away by drifting. Jesus also warns us about a love for this world and the many cares of it. Obedience is just too costly. The glory of God isn't treasured more than the pleasures of this world. And sometimes that just comes down to sex. And people turn away. Jesus also mentions persecution as another reason. And many people today are so afraid of what people think of them that the social costs for following Jesus are too much. So at first they're just sheepish, quiet fringe disciples, and then they quietly turn away and go back. Are you here this morning tempted? Maybe by the pleasures of this world or by the sufferings of this world and you're just discouraged and feel like it's too hard. Well, if that's you or if you've been there or if you can imagine it will be you or will be you again, pay close attention to Peter's confession here. When Jesus asks the twelve... You don't want to go away too, do you? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, there's always a message that's being proclaimed by someone or something telling you where to find life. But outside of Christ, it's all perishing. People, pleasures, things, nothing in this world lasts forever. And we can't take it with us. If we want eternal life, there's only one place to go. It's to the Word of God incarnate. To the one from heaven. The one who's willing to die that we might live. The one who came preaching the good news of his kingdom. Jesus alone can save us from our sins. Jesus alone brings true comfort, lasting joy. Jesus alone can expel all our fears, secure real life. Where else can you go? And how else can you know you have eternal life? Notice how Peter says that with deep conviction. We believe and know. His faith isn't without reason here. He believes and knows. Sometimes people put these two things together. Like you can't be rational and have faith. You have faith when there's no no logical reason for what you believe. That's not the case. Based on John chapter 5, Peter can say, Through your miracles and through the testimony of the scriptures, we have come to believe and know you have the words of eternal life. Now, keep in mind, Peter's confident conviction here isn't yet fully mature. Uh, Later, he will deny Jesus when the costs are more imminent and great. So even if you're not yet as confident as Peter sounds, don't give up. Peter's eventually willing to die for his faith. And I pray that as we keep working our way through John, as you keep following Christ and obeying his word, you'll own a deeper conviction. You'll come to say what he says here. But another way to deal with doubt that you might have is also very much implied here. Take an honest look at the alternative. 
Where else can we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? I I love the Lenny Demers version of this verse. Really, Jesus? Really? It's the rhetorical father. Where else can we go? What am I going to do? That's so true. Jesus is the way to God. You've got something better than God for me? God is the very definition of love and life. Where else can we go? Who else should we listen to? What other teaching compares? As I've dipped my toe into philosophy, I can say that if I weren't a Christian, I'd be a nihilist. I think that's the most logically consistent position to end up at if the resurrection isn't true. I I believe that. But I hate thinking about the person I'd become. I know my heart, and it's not pretty. I would become the rotten fruit of a life that I understand is meaningless, apart from the resurrection. There's no good alternative. So when you're tempted to turn back, Or simply get lazy because following Jesus is too hard. Look at this confession and go back to the basics. Revisit these first principles. Jesus is God. He's the Holy One. He has the words of eternal life. If those two things are true, you can't go back. What the world calls radical or extreme is the only life that makes sense. Based on those first principles. So be radical. Live according to God's word. Not your own understanding or feelings. That's radical today. Deny yourself pleasures that would draw you away from life in Jesus. Don't spend all your money on yourself for this world. Store up treasures in heaven. Give to the work of the gospel that brings life. Be committed to other sinners in a local church and sacrificially work for their good and for God's glory when it hurts. Love your enemies and forgive those who sin against you. Find your identity in Christ and not in what you feel or what others say or even what you accomplish. Live in such a way that doesn't make sense and that other people, maybe your own family, will have a hard time accepting unless they could see Jesus in his glory. Our flesh rejects Jesus because what he says is hard and because there's nothing to gain in this world. But the very thing that's hard is where eternal life is. So even when others are offended or when others turn back, we continue to follow Jesus by relying on his spirit and his word. Because we believe and know these are the words of eternal life. And yet many people, maybe even us, would answer Peter's question differently if we were honest. Just think about time spent And what fires you up emotionally. And how many of us would answer Peter, where else can I go? And we'd say, well, to to my teachers. Or my friends. Or my favorite news source and cultural commentators. To my favorite political candidate. Or to my own thoughts. Be honest. Where do you turn? Where are you turning? Is that keeping you from becoming angry or anxious? Or does where you turn bring you peace and joy? Life comes from the Spirit by the Word through faith in Jesus. So if you believe He has the words of eternal life, then don't prioritize anything more than your relationship with Him. Which means you should regularly be in the Bible to grow in your knowledge of God that you might grow in your love for God. It means that nothing should be prioritized over gathering with the body of Christ on Sundays. Where we hear his word, prayed, read, preached, 
sung. Yes, sometimes by necessity, there will be something in life that will take you away from gathering with the church to hear his word. But otherwise, this is the priority. This is where life is. And that means among all your relationships that you have in this world, there should be a Christian or Christians that are among your closest relationships. This is how you grow spiritually, but also so that you can remain like one of the 12 who say, where else can we go? In fact, I encourage you to make it hard to walk away. Set up your life in such a way that makes it harder to leave Jesus and easier to stay. Imagine if Peter couldn't say we in verse 68 and 69. Imagine if he was there alone. But he's not. And you don't want to be. Work hard to form deep, meaningful relationships in the church. And that's hard. But work hard. Serve in such a way that you'd be missed. If you can, live near other members so that you're more likely to bump into them or simply spend time with them. Invest your money and your time into the kingdom because you know you don't so easily walk away from a huge investment. And yet one of them will. Verse 70. Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. Let's say get proud of their sound doctrine and their decision to stay and follow Jesus. Jesus reminds them, as with the Father who draws you, as with the Spirit who enables you, so it is with me, I have chosen you. They're there by grace. And if you're a Christian, it's by grace. And that should humble you and encourage you. This is security for faith and life. Not that you're smarter or better, but that God has chosen you. And yet Jesus says, one of you is a devil, referring to Judas, who'd betray him. So clearly, just based on everything in this passage, it's not enough to be around Jesus. All these people were around Jesus. And kids, that means that just because you have Christian parents and grow up in the church doesn't mean that you're a Christian or that you'll always follow Christ. You need to make sure that your faith is your own and follow Jesus if you, when you grow up, even if no one else does. And just because you're part of a college ministry or even if you join a church, make sure you're not a fringe disciple but we'll keep following Jesus to the very end. Now, how come Jesus mentions Judas twice? And why does John want us to see that? If you're telling a good story, you don't share the twist before the end. That kind of takes away from the story. But that's not the point here. John wants us to know up front, when many don't believe and when many walk away, that Jesus knew what he was doing with those he chose to be around him. Even when he chose Judas. John wants us to see that being the savior of the world meant being betrayed, unjustly accused, and nailed to the cross. That at that moment, even though he wasn't being applauded and followed by the crowds, and instead a symbol of shame and disgrace... That that's not a time to abandon, uh, abandon Christ. Jesus chose a devil to be with him as part of his perfect plan to save sinners. So the cross isn't a sign of failure. His death isn't a reason to be offended. The fact that people leaving aren't a reason, a reason to leave him. John wants us to see that Judas is there on purpose. He wants us to believe in Jesus when he's at the cross. The presence of Judas means two things that we've been thinking about the whole morning. Jesus' death isn't a reason to reject Jesus' words. And just because one of his closest followers turns away doesn't mean we have to. If one of his closest followers betrays him, we shouldn't be surprised when the world rejects him. And if one of his closest followers is a devil... 
we shouldn't be surprised if some fringe disciples actually end up living like the world. So no one needs to be surprised by the most recent Pew Research poll that says the number of Americans, a growing number of Americans, are moving away from Christianity. I mean, that's in part because many who simply attend church and identify as followers of Christ aren't any different than these fringe disciples in John 6. And as long as it's culturally beneficial to be a Christian, we shouldn't be surprised by a large number of fringe disciples who walk away. The culture has changed and is changing. But there's no reason to speculate about whether or not Christianity is dying. It's not. And these reports don't sway to believers. In fact, Bible-believing churches are growing everywhere, even in New England. And there have always been attacks on the Bible and on Christians, and none of it has been surprising or effective. And it's because Jesus prepares us for this from the beginning. Christians are more amazed by the fact that we believe than by the fact that others don't. It could be an entire culture, or one celebrity pastor, an unhealthy church, or just one fellow member. But they're leaving, or their failure isn't a reason to give up and turn back. It's all hard. But the gospel is still true. Jesus is still Lord. He has risen from the dead. He has the words of eternal life. And he has chosen us. So we remain. In closing, it's okay to say living by faith is hard. The promises of heaven aren't yet realized. We follow a crucified Savior that the world hates. And so the costs are real. But when you weigh them all against the hope of eternal life with God and seeing Him in glory, they're worth it. We will see Jesus and experience life with Him for eternity. So don't give up. Obtain the goal of your faith and experience real life with Jesus by relying on the Spirit and His Word. Let's pray. Oh God, for our 